0: Hey there everybody, welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast, where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. In 1964, Bob Dylan sung The Times They Are a Changin'. And as I'm sure you have noticed recently, the climate, it is a changing. And whether it's a natural occurrence or a product of greenhouse gas emissions, I think we can all agree that while we don't have control over Mother Nature, we do have control over greenhouse gas emissions. Hopefully, the reduction of those emissions will shift climate change, and if nothing else, planet Earth will certainly be a cleaner, more pleasurable place to live, Remember how clear the sky was at the beginning of the pandemic when offices and businesses were shut down and the normally omnipresent planes, trains, and automobiles were nowhere to be seen or heard? Well, Realty Speak fans, today, August 10th, 2023, my co-host, Lindsay Liu, and guest Jim Lane will tackle this very subject and how new regulations and laws can help us sing a different tune. I'm your host, Bill Widener. And welcome, Lindsay Liu and Jim Lane.
1: Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here.
0: Thanks for inviting me, Bill. I'm really happy to be here. Glad to have you both here.
1: Lindsay, you are the
0: co-founder and CEO of Super, a productivity platform for all building managers and the boards and residents of condominiums and cooperatives. Jim, you are the program manager for the City University of New York Building Performance Lab where you manage the programs to train building operators for energy efficiency and carbon emissions reductions, and also teach classes for the New York City Sustainability Help Center, which is a free public resource offered by the City University of New York to help everyone understand New York City's major building sustainability laws. Lindsay and Jim, we would love to hear a little bit about how each of you evolved into your current roles. Lindsay?
1: I've been in the technology field for over 15 years now, building and launching digital products for other companies. Along the way, I've also invested in real estate. So that's kind of how the passion for real estate began was I've done a few flips. I manage some single family homes. I have a couple multifamily uh, properties as well. And it just seems like there was so much opportunity to continue to evolve the industry and take it into the 21st century.
0: You identified a gap managing these properties yourself, and super is a solution?
1: Exactly. In fact, I use super with my own properties today. That's the best way to know it's working.
0: I would hope so. Jim? In my early working
2: career, after i had recently graduated from college, I was moving to New York City. I was teaching about the ecology of natural systems, about Hudson River ecology and the forested areas I taught in Inwood Hill Park, Van Cortlandt Park, the large forested areas of New York City, the ecology of our urban area. In 2007, I switched over to teaching about buildings and building ecology, which is for only one species, sort of the reverse of natural ecology, teaching about building science based on mold prevention. From there... I took some training and got involved with the energy efficiency building performance industry during the ARA, stimulus era of the Obama administration, about 10, 12 years ago. And then in 2018, I landed with City University Building Performance Lab to manage a building operator training to bring this information to building owners, property managers, and the staff that they supervise to make their buildings more energy efficient and reduce their carbon emissions.
0: So, is Building Performance Lab a unique aspect of City University of New York as compared to other universities? It's not the only similar entity
2: in the world, but it was originally founded by the city through the City University to measure building performance, energy efficiency in their own buildings. As the 2008 2009 Greater Greener Buildings Act had been passing, the city realized it needed to start with their own buildings, and that was the origin of Building Performance Lab.
0: Both of you, thanks for sharing. Listeners, you are in for some great insights today, so buckle up in your EV electric vehicle and let's get going. Lindsay, you're going to co-host with me today, and I know you had an initial question that you wanted to pose to Jim.
1: I did, because there's a lot to try to wrap your head around today. So Jim, there are many gas emission laws at the federal, state, and local level. Would you break that down for us?
2: The federal go- government has set the broad policy and distributing money to the states so that they can then refine what needs to be done at each state. Most of the carbon reduction, carbon dioxide reduction emissions are divided into the major categories that they're in the transportation sector and then in building sector. And there are other industrial and commercial sectors involved, but basically it's transportation and buildings. And then it goes down to the state level. In New York State, we have adapted a code for building owners, and also in the transportation sector. And then New York City has adapted one of the most aggressive carbon reduction policies in the world. When it first passed in 2019, it was
0: the first. And now many cities and other jurisdictions around the world have followed suit. What I find surprising, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually buildings that contribute most of the greenhouse gas emissions as opposed to transportation. In New York City, that's true. In
2: other jurisdictions, less true. Why? Because New York City has for many, many years had the advantage of our public transportation system. The buses, the trains, the commuter rail all contribute to a very small carbon dioxide footprint for New York City. However, our buildings are rather well known for being tall and large. And unfortunately, that also has meant wasteful about energy use and carbon emissions.
0: So there are many different local laws in New York City that deal with limiting greenhouse gas emissions. And could you talk to us a little bit about the benchmarking aspect of it, the letter grades aspect of it, the audits that have to be done, the retrofitting that occurs? I know this is a lot to unpack, but the retrofitting that occurs as a result of those audits. And then, you know, really the big elephant in the room, which is local law 97, which, oh, in a few months, (laughs) 2024, that's right, 2024? Yes. Yeah, in a few months, 2024, uh, this thing is going to be off and running. What about benchmarking?
2: I think I'll go backwards for just a quick second and explain that the the sets of laws that we're discussing were passed in two chunks. In 2008, we had the Greater Greener Buildings Act. That included, as you mentioned, benchmarking law, Local Law 84, retrocommissioning and energy auditing, Local Law 87. There's a law in there about electric metering, and that was mostly for commercial buildings. And then some of those were updated in 2013, they reduced the size of buildings required to report for their benchmarking threshold for size on buildings went from 50,000 square feet down to 25,000 square feet.
0: For which one of the laws? All of them?
2: For Local Law 84 and now for the letter grade law and for Local Law 97. The exception in this is that for retro commissioning And for energy auditing, the threshold remains at 50,000 square feet. And I encourage people to look into the details of these laws, because if you have multiple buildings on the same lot in the building, then you get, you know, it's a larger size of buildings that must comply, or, you know, square footage, but they still fit into the law if there are multiple buildings on the same campus. Look carefully if you have that situation.
0: If you have contiguous buildings... And they're on separate lots, but they're next door to each other, and then add up to 55,000 square feet and put you in that category? If the lots are separate lots, then the initial answer is no. However,
2: if they share a heating system, which some owners have done, they've connected their heating system, now the Department of Buildings is going to look at that more as if it's one building because there are connected mechanical systems.
1: We work with a number of buildings that do have to comply with Local Law 97, but also some that are under 25,000 square feet. How should the smaller buildings be thinking about planning ahead?
2: Excellent, because this kind of applies to all buildings. I want people to remember that the code set by New York City is the bare minimum. Every property manager, every architect and design engineer can do better than bare minimum. And that's in part what this law is encouraging people to realize. When you get your energy audit report, there's a list of things you can do to your building to reduce its energy use, its carbon dioxide emissions, and you save money. right? And that's kind of the whole thing here is you can do better than the bare minimum that's required by code at all times areas of building property, management, design, and even decommissioning.
0: Jim, you mentioned different participants, architects, engineers. Could we boil this down to who specifically has to participate in this as the support for the building owner? Like, Would it just be the engineer, the architect, the utility, or other participants that need to be aboard the boat? from design phase forward, the engineer, the architect, they now have both codes.
2: There are also advanced standards that architects and engineers can look to from ASHRAE, from USGBC Green Building Council, and others. There's Net Zero, there's Passive House. There's a number of standards that design professionals can look at to improve building performance from the inception. Then the operators of the building are key. Obviously, they're the ones who are monitoring mechanical systems that use energy. The owner managers are the ones who would be looking at contracting with heating or electrical companies to make improvements to their building and then also make sure that once mechanical systems are set up for efficient operations, that they are then maintained that way. And there is some monitoring to do in that regard. There are all sorts of data management tools, then the owner managers of the buildings do have some obligation, especially where there are existing buildings that have been around for a long time now. They are, with Local Law 97 coming at them, they do need to be thinking about how they target their capital expenses and how they change over to more efficient, lower carbon emitting systems and and components as they go. And one of the key factors that we very frequently talk to building owner property managers about is what you want to look at is the natural life cycle of your energy using systems and components. When it's time to change over, whatever we're talking about, a boiler, windows, motors for vent fans, when you're changing over, that's the time to look at spending a few extra dollars and getting the energy efficiency gains from that little bit extra spend that you're gonna if you're replacing your roof, that's the time to put in extra insulation in your roof cavity because you've already got that roof opened up, right? So those are the kind of mentality that we want people to think about is you're going to spend money on your building anyway. When you're spending capital money, look at the energy efficiency, carbon dioxide gains for that system, for that component while you're spending money anyway. The other part of that that I didn't get to, the utility companies play a key role in New York State. Con Edison and the other utility providers do get money through your bill. It's called the systems benefit charge. People who pay that charge are also able to tap into Con Ed incentives that will help them bring things or install things in their buildings that will make energy use more efficient and reduce carbon dioxide emissions. You can also tap into funds from the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA, However, you cannot use both NICERTA and CONED funds because they are all coming from that public service charge. So you can't use both, no double dipping. But both of those are excellent sources of funding for building owner property managers to get these things done at your building.
0: Is there any one of those two, the utility or NYSERDA, that typically result in a bigger contribution or does it really depend on the project that's happening in the building?
2: The NYSERDA programs tend to have larger thresholds of the amount of money that the property manager building owner is spending already. They want they are targeting the large property, large energy users. Con Ed's program or the utility level program, because the other utilities around New York State also have similar incentive programs. They target or offer the incentive to all building owners. They even have programs for small homeowners and all different sizes of multifamily, commercial and industrial buildings can all qualify. With NYSERDA the qualifying criteria are specific for each of the public opportunity notices the PON.
1: Something I'm sure many of us are thinking about is the rising cost of doing some of these projects because of interest rates, with the cost of financing for these types of retrofits and upgrades increasing. Are there any resources and tools for buildings to think about how to get these projects done?
2: There are provisions in the 2019 law to help building owners finance, sponsored by New York City's Accelerator Program, Property Assessed Clean Energy, PACE. They have experts who can help building owners understand what the whole financing package is going to be including as you mentioned there are increases in finance rates that we've dealt with in the past four or five years and also a key factor in understanding cost and estimating cost is the time involved what the industry is experiencing right now is because of the delays in supply chain and manufacturers even getting their parts to put into their machines and components that are going into buildings there is a factor of time and delivery of the components that we're trying to put into buildings right now that is a companion to the finance cost. It's 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 the cost of time itself. And sometimes having to wait for a project component can be problematic when the incentives that I mentioned before from Con Ed or from NYSERDA, if the incentive is tied to timing on when the energy conservation measure is actually installed in the building, delay can greatly affect the availability of that financing. And so those things really do need to be considered together in the project planning for owner, engineers, architects, you know, whether it's well with new construction it's a little bit different, but with with retrofit, you've got to be thinking of timing of component and system delivery.
1: What is the role of residents in supporting all of these initiatives? So when they're hot and they want to turn on their AC and blast it when they're gone, if they don't want to install a smart thermometer, what is their responsibility?
2: I'm pretty sure that Bill's audience probably realizes that residents are the wild variable in all of these kinds of property management discussions. And it's for property management, building owners, therein lies your tenant education, tenant relation role that's part of owning a building is you've got to talk to and communicate with your residents with your tenants whether it's commercial or residential building so there are points of education around what tenants can do to increase their own energy efficiency one of the things that we discuss in the training courses is this idea of split incentive who's paying the bill especially when you come to electric bills if the tenant is paying then there's all number of things that can be done to help them, encourage them to save energy. There's Energy Star appliances. Owners can provide information about that sort of thing. The hard part comes when this, when the incentive for savings is somehow split. If, For example, if the person buying an appliance is not paying for the electricity bill, they have no incentive to buy the Energy Star more efficient refrigerator, for example, refrigerator being one of the major energy users, anything with a compressor, refrigerators, air conditioners. So where does the bill land is going to really be part of the decision-making around large appliances? That's part of this law to install meters on commercial spaces of more than 5,000 square feet is to encourage that the person who's paying the bill has the incentive to install more efficient appliances.
1: What about mixed-use buildings where you have a commercial space and you're sharing, uh, you might be sharing meters or utilities, and they're contributing a ton to the overall cap that the building has.
2: There is another dilemma for the building owner, because there will be some number of commercial tenants who really are incentivized to use more energy, whatever specific use they may have. In Local Law 97, there was an adjustment made to the original law to try and account for different intensities of energy use in different kinds of building spaces or uses of those spaces. An example of that is a jewelry store is going to have very bright lighting because they're selling jewelry. A warehouse doesn't need intense lighting and so they're going to have a lower lighting use energy footprint. The law does try to account for those different uses, but again, it comes back to tenant education and What I've heard from the large commercial property managers is that once they put that control and that burden of paying the bill on the tenant, they find ways to save energy, which does reduce the overall footprint for the building. And we could go into this whole concept of deep energy retrofits and the interactive savings you get when you address more than one energy using system at a time. And that's what we're looking at in the package of laws. We're looking for people to start going into that deeper energy retrofit mentality, and that's where you start to get the real savings both for energy and carbon dioxide emissions reductions.
0: The benchmarking and the letter grades, which has already happened, those relate to each other? Yes. Benchmarking is the baseline for all of this, right? We have to know how
2: much energy and water is the building using, and what are the changes year over year. So benchmarking is an annual process. And when did that start? That started in 2009, 2010 is when most buildings had to begin compliance. So for each year, the energy is measured for the calendar year and the report is sent to the Department of Buildings by May 1st of the following calendar year. In different words, you have four months to get your report together and send it to the building department for your benchmarking. And then does that result in what your letter grade is? The Department of Buildings takes those benchmarking scores, and there is something of a curve grading system for when they derive the letter grade. So your your building will be compared to similar buildings of like type and like size. Those buildings that all fit in the same category are graded on a curve, meaning that your score is compared to similar buildings, and they set the, the grade levels based on percentages that they have for each set. Don't feel bad. If your building got a C or a D in the first few rounds of grading, that's where most New York City buildings have fallen.
0: If you get a C or a D or even a B, is there a fine associated with that if it goes on too long? The fines are associated with your actual
2: carbon dioxide emissions. The grade is sort of a public-facing way for people to get some basic sense of the efficiency for that building. Part of the reason that the law was passed is there is expectation that as buildings are able to demonstrate that they are more efficiently run, they will be more attractive to tenants, especially more on the commercial tenant side where their, their energy use is going to be bigger than the average residential user. And so there's, there's a stronger incentive to the commercial tenants to really save energy. And that's part of the whole point in this thing is making energy use transparent, and encouraging those larger tenants to really look at how they use energy and reduce energy use and, in turn, reduce carbon dioxide
1: emissions. So, Local Law 97 starts in 2024. What should people expect then?
2: That first round, 2024, is the year in which carbon dioxide emissions measurements will count towards either compliance with the law, or if you're out of compliance, the building owner will pay a penalty, a fine to New York City through Department of Finance. The measures to reduce energy use, and really what we're targeting for that law is reducing carbon dioxide emissions, the measurement for 2024 will be the first that matters. And then if there's going to be a fine due, the energy efficiency report will be due on May 1st, much like the benchmarking report, building owners will have four months to prepare their report for the previous calendar year, carbon dioxide emissions. I definitely encourage people to use a tool from the Building Energy Exchange Program. It's a not-for-profit founded in New York City, now expanded to several other cities, our carbon dioxide emissions calculator. That's a very useful tool. Building owners enter in what their energy use is by energy type, and then also have a calculation. Of, uh, theres That's what the tool is. It builds in a calculator for both your energy cost and Whether you're under or over the carbon dioxide cap, and what that fine would be if you're over the cap. What that has resulted in for the industry is that people are now talking about having both an energy budget, you spend so much money on your energy, but then you're also now going to have a carbon budget. If your building is emitting more carbon dioxide than is allowed by the law, by the cap in the law, you're going to pay a penalty. What some buildings owners are doing is saying, making that balance equation. I can spend some number of capital dollars to improve my energy efficiency, which would also reduce my carbon dioxide emissions, but that money is going to cost me some amount to finance, right? You just pointed out financing costs have gone up. So now they're doing this sort of balancing act or dance, if you will between their energy budget and their carbon dioxide budget. And that's what property managers
0: now have these two balance sheets to be looking at. Well, speaking of balance sheets, there was a article in the Daily News on August 5th regarding exactly what it is that we're talking about. And in the article, they said it's estimated that by 2024, more than 3,500 properties could face $200 million in fines, with penalties projected to exceed $1 billion by 2035. How is everything that we're talking about today play into that?
2: One of the important things about Local Law 97 is that it's set up so every five years, the intensity of the penalty ratchets up. So if a building owner is paying some level of fine, not using dollars, just a number, if they're paying 100 units in 2025 for the 2024 emissions, if they do nothing in their building, then through 2029, they will be paying that 100 unit of dollars number for their penalty. In 2030, their penalty, their fine is going to go up. If they've done nothing, it's going to go up exponentially or much higher when they start paying the bills from 2030 to 2035. So that may be where this very large billion dollar fine number comes from is if building owners continue to do nothing. Well, let's face it, building owners aren't that dumb. They're going to do something to save money and and not pay those large fines. So the more they do now to bring their carbon dioxide emissions down, the less that penalty is going to be in 2030 and 2035. The other part I want to bring to people's attention is the sooner you do these energy conservation measures to your building, the sooner you start saving money on your energy bill. Forget about the carbon dioxide tax, if you want to call it that. You save money on your energy bill almost right away. I mean, many building owners have already changed over to LED lighting. Why? It's Because they saw an almost immediate payback from the older technologies when they switched to LED. Similar paybacks are there for other components, other energy-saving systems. The payback n- might not be as fast, but you're still saving money sooner if you install the measure sooner. And that also then impacts your long-term carbon dioxide emissions and your ultimate carbon dioxide penalties.
1: So you mentioned changing out lighting. That seems like a pretty easy one to accomplish. What are some of the other energy-saving measures that existing buildings can be looking to that don't feel like they're million-dollar projects?
2: Some that I teach about regularly. In our building operator training program through operations and maintenance, we estimate depending on the existing efficiencies of the building, they can save anywhere from 5 to 20% of their energy just by basic operations and maintenance improvements. Air sealing the building, caulking the windows, seal all the holes. We say to people, walk around your building at the basement to roof, you will be surprised at how many small cracks and holes you find in your building, seal those up. Other things that building owners can do, as I mentioned before, when you're Changing some component or system anyway, that's the time to look for the more efficient version of whatever you're replacing. So classic example of that for vent fan motors or the, the system of the vent fan itself. If it's a belt-driven motor, replace the belt-driven motor with a direct-drive motor. If you've already got a direct-drive motor, then you go from the old-fashioned basic AC motor to an energy commutating motor, ECM motor. So there's ways for each component looking at when you're when you're replacing anyway, what's the more efficient? Maybe it's a small margin of cost increase, but you're going to get that back on the energy savings, right? There's going to be a payback for that margin cost difference. So that's what we encourage. Vent fan motors are a good one. There are some where you go a little bit further in, costs a little bit more to do it, but then you're also getting a, a greater energy saving. One very popular measure for buildings that were still burning oil up until 10 years ago, and even right now, although this one is going to phase out pretty soon. When people were making the oil-to-gas conversions, that was a really strong incentive program from the utility companies. Kind did a lot of those oil-to-gas conversions for heating systems in buildings. Now we're looking at even further reduction of the carbon emissions in the buildings and moving towards somehow electrifying delivery of heat. To the units, that's a little more complicated, especially in existing buildings. Not every building is going to be able to accomplish electrification. So, what are the interim technology steps? And that's when we start looking at getting deeper consultation from available resources. New York City Accelerator has engineers and experienced energy managers. Serving as consultants, New York City has made that a free resource to all building owners, property managers, to access this expert advice through the Accelerator program. I definitely encourage people to tap into that resource as they try and answer these questions about the deeper fits, that they, retrofits that they can do to their building. Every building is different. It's something that we emphasize continuously. We, you really do need to have a look specifically to your systems, your building, and what's available to change
0: and make better. And you're saying that figuring that out is a free resource.
2: Accelerator provides professionals who will help the building owner to figure out what their building what can be done to their building. I mean, they're not going to do a full energy audit, right? That costs money, but they but they can use pace financing, or they you know there are financing available for those parts of the service as well.
0: Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I'd like to share that in addition to my mission to be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate, I will also help you comply with New York City Local Law 152. That's LL 152 Periodic Inspection of Gas piping systems. This law applies to every building, gas or not, that is not a one-family or two-family residential dwelling. That's every apartment building from three units and up, every condominium and co-op building, every hotel, every industrial building, every freestanding retail building, and more. Yes, every building except one-family and two-family residential dwellings. It's been around since 2020, and so has my company, Keep My Gas. Learn more about the law and how to comply at www.ll152.myc. That's www.ll152.myc. Or, I'm just a phone call away, 917 232 8529 917 232 8529. I'll explain everything, get you a quote. So if you haven't complied yet, you can do so before it's too late. What else can I say? Solutions for real estate, it's in my DNA.
1: And now back to the show. Jim, you talked about electrification, and that's a really hot topic right now. And my understanding is for new developments, New York City is going to phase out gas in those as well. how does How is the city thinking about being able to support a grid where everyone's using pretty much electric in their apartments, where there's EV charging, where just the amount of electric load is just going to be so much higher?
0: And, and I want to add to that question, Lindsay, electric is expensive. And I just heard that the Public Service Commission approved some pretty significant increases for the utilities in the cost per kilowatt hour so if you electrify a building, with respect to what Lindsay asked, how does the grid handle that? And my part two of that question is, the burden seems to be on the building owner. In regard to
2: impact on the grid itself, I want people to think for a moment of how we use energy in buildings seasonally. We use a lot of electrical energy in buildings in the summertime to run cooling systems. So we already have, in the summertime, this peak demand problem to solve. When we start to electrify buildings for their heating systems, then we're simply going to transfer peak demand to a wintertime peak that the utilities are going to deal with. Do utilities already deal with peak demand on their systems? Yes, in the summertime. Now we're gonna have to add in that there's going to be peak demand on electric grid in the winter because people will be using electricity to heat their buildings as well as to cool them. That part of the problem is solvable. The utility companies are upgrading their components to handle different loads at different times of year. They are also working with property owners and managers to use the new distributed energy resources that are going into buildings. There are people installing solar panels. There's people installing on-site generators for their electric and, and heating uses where those other generators or supply of the electricity, that helps to stabilize the grid. And that's part of what the state and the city are looking at is how to support and incentivize the distributed energy resources so that those will help stabilize our grid during times of peak energy demand. What does distributed energy mean? So that would be solar panels, any kind of renewable energy coming into the grid, so solar wind energy generation, it's also when there's on-site generation, basically using a diesel motor on-site to generate their own electricity for a large campus. Many properties around New York City have had those installed for many years. Some places, they originally installed their generator for their for its electric power and took the heat coming off the diesel engine as sort of free heat for their existing heating system. Others installed the diesel motor to supply the heat for their heating system, and took the resultant ability to run a uh, generator for their electric needs as the sort of the free energy. So either way, those systems are providing both heat and electricity to their home system, but they can also, add when they're able to generate extra electricity during peak demand times, they can help to stabilize
0: the grid. Going back to my part two of the question, I mean, that sounds good if you're at that scale. You have the ability to do that. What about somebody that owns a 20-unit apartment building that is 100 years old, and now they have to convert everything to electric in order to reduce their greenhouse gas emission footprint and pay the electric bill? couple thoughts on that one. First of all, 20
2: units would be very close to the threshold, right? 25,000 square feet is the threshold for compliance. 20-unit building typically would probably not go over if the broad average in New York City is 1,000 square feet per unit. Roughly speaking, you're talking about 25 to 30-unit buildings that that would be the threshold that would need to comply. Even without that, though, let's look at that 20-unit building that didn't need to comply with the local law requirements. They're still going to save money if they install energy conservation measures in their building. They're going to reduce their energy bill as well as their carbon dioxide emissions. For those that are over the threshold, the emphasis here comes back to energy efficiency. Use your money, spend your money first to get your energy use as low as possible. Then start looking at ways that you can add in renewable energy, get your efficiencies as best they can be, and start reducing the number of kilowatt hours. Then start looking at ways you can add in renewables. And there are ways to buy renewable credits for property owners and building managers. More likely, it's going to be the large properties that are way over their carbon dioxide emissions who are going to be buying those credits. But that doesn't mean small building owners can't do it. They could just as well decide they're going to spend their money on renewable credits as on energy conservation measures.
0: This all sounds great, But at some level, you still have to produce the electricity. So if a utility is producing electricity using a fossil fuel, whether it be diesel or oil or natural gas, isn't that still a low-level problem that we have to solve? And can we solve it with solar, wind, nuclear, or energy that's produced by hydrogen? I'll take that in two parts.
2: The first part being where fossil fuels are burned and how we have this carbon dioxide emissions to think about, as well as the number of kilowatt hours produced and the money that it costs to use those kilowatt hours. So a centrally located plant that generates electricity will produce less carbon dioxide per useful energy unit than the distributed carbon dioxide producers, which we would think of as all the boilers and furnaces in our individual buildings, each pumping out their own small amount of carbon dioxide. That central plant will pump out more carbon dioxide altogether. However, the electricity that it generates can be used more efficiently at those same buildings that used to pump out their own small amount of carbon dioxide are now getting more efficient energy use per ton of carbon dioxide that the central plant is emitting then we come to though the question of cost yes that electricity cost more than the carbon-based fuel that it was replacing that brings me back to the importance of elect of energy efficiency make your building as energy efficient as possible so when you switch from carbon burning fuels to electricity the impact on your dollar budget
0: is not so big And what about those alternative sources of energy like solar, wind, hydrogen, nuclear? Certainly, solar, wind, hydropower,
2: those are all renewable, do not create carbon dioxide emissions, and in terms of carbon dioxide, almost like a free source to the grid. Nuclear power also creates no carbon dioxide while generating electricity. However, most people are aware in the United States... Adding nuclear
0: power generation is a political non-starter. And when you're looking at it in a location that is not the United States, is there a case study for nuclear power being where we should be going? Some would say that, yes. People are calling
2: the fourth and fifth generation of nuclear power plants are considerably safer than the earlier generations and let's remember there have really only been three major nuclear power plant accidents in the world since we've started using nuclear power the scary part is that when we do have a nuclear power plant problem it is disastrous and that's why people are so afraid of them these latest generations of nuclear power plants are much safer in france they generate a great deal of their energy and especially well obviously electrical energy is from nuclear power plants they don't have the political issues around that that we have here in this country so in some ways france is ahead of the curve in having a relatively inexpensive source of electricity available to them
0: in france how does that impact their emissions footprint
2: naturally it would reduce the overall emissions footprint Part of my response to to your bigger picture question about other sources of energy as we try to decarbonize our overall energy use, something people generally don't want to hear is we need to reduce our use of resources, period. All of these efficiency gains from the beginning of time, every time humans have gotten to a more efficient use of energy, we're not satisfied. When we change from wood fuel to coal fuel, we simply use more energy. We didn't be satisfied that we were getting the same amount of heat or industrial firepower out of coal that we used to get out of wood. We simply used more and that has gone on for every efficiency gain, for every technology gain that humans have ever come up with. We've always simply used more. My Mantra is: we've also simply got to reduce the amount of resource that we're using. There's a whole hierarchy: reduce, reuse, recycle, and the re-re-read. There's a whole. The top of the list is reduce. Please, all the efficiency in the world won't save us. We need to reduce our use
0: of resources. Period. So that means that people, obviously all over the world, but if we just talk about the United States, people have to not leave the water running while they're brushing their teeth. They have to not leave the air conditioner on when they're not home. They have to get a smart thermostat that turns it on an hour before they expect to get home. And the same thing with the heat in the winter. Those kinds of individual level consumer technology adaptations are good
2: examples of how we can use our digitized world to feed these reductions in energy use. A great many of our systems in buildings now have a digitized connection of some sort. Once that information is out there in the information grid, we can use it and that's what my colleagues on the engineering solution side at Building Performance Lab, they do the data analytics to make buildings more efficient. And these days, with the artificial augmented intelligence coming on, we're even moving past the the need for a human to interact with these data sets. And we're able to automate improvements in the data sets in the larger buildings. You know, you're, you're talking about individuals using a smart thermostat. Imagine a building management system for large commercial buildings in Manhattan where it's a smart thermostat on steroids. It's able to monitor all the different data points in the building and make adjustments as people come and go from the building, as weather conditions change outside. These automated systems are able to make adjustments in the building to save energy in real time.
1: To your point, the transparency of energy use, right, it starts with having the knowledge and having the data, and so that's a really important part of it. Though, one Question about the alternative sources of energy, where we're talking about things like solar. I've heard people talk about heat pump exchangers. A lot of that feels like that's the responsibility of the building. But then when you think about things like hydro and wind, those are about the energy provider finding more sustainable uses. Where does the burden really lie?
2: An interesting aspect of the law for renewable energy credit is that it's required to be inside of zone J for New York state. And New York state divides the zones of electrical energy supply into letters, letter zones. New York city is in zone J. The reason for that provision in the law is that right now, all the wires that carry electricity into New York city are very close to full capacity. In different words, we can't carry any more electricity through those wires to the city. So If the electricity is generated, for example, in Orange County, across the Hudson River, a little ways upstate, they can't really get it into New York City because the wires are already full of electrons. So we need for any of those sources, solar, wind, hydro, has to be already connected to New York City or inside of Zone J, which kind of limits what people can do with renewable energy. Wind... There's a question of safe siting of windmills or other kinds of wind-generating spinners. And very recently, New York City passed a law to allow small-scale wind generation installation on buildings. That was a hurdle. We got past it. There are a lot of building roof space in New York City, but not nearly as much as you might if you were to buy a farm in upstate New York. And you've got a whole bunch of land area to install solar panels. New York City, we have our roofs, but that's about it.
1: There's only so much energy that can be piped into the city, and there's only so much capacity for the city to generate its own energy. That's the gridlock. I mean, how
0: realistic is all this? Are, are we being too ambitious in terms of the timelines, or are we being overly ambitious on purpose so that even if we don't meet the timelines, we're way ahead of where we would have been if we delay implementing these strategies? This is where my response goes a little bit bipolar.
2: First is, we've had 50 years, at least 40 years, of knowing that climate change is coming on. Engineers and even the petrochemical industry knew 40 years ago that we were going to be facing these problems starting now. So we're here, and apparently the climate science engineering community has failed, up until now, to motivate people to do something about carbon dioxide emissions contributing to climate change. Now, we have these laws in New York City. Some would argue 30 years late. So, we're way behind the curve already on doing anything about carbon dioxide emissions in New York City buildings. On the other hand, this is where my flip comes. We set these very ambitious goals at a late date, and it puts an enormous burden On the building owner property manager to suddenly bear the financial burden that could have been, should have been addressing for 30 years. But now we're trying to do it in from 2019 to 2025, six years to make up for 30 or 40 years of neglect. That's a huge burden on those property owners and building managers. In the midst of that, we had the COVID pandemic, which totally threw world supply chain supply chains have not recovered the capacity of the engineering companies, the, the suppliers of the components that are going to need to be installed, the heat pumps and the solar panels and the inverters that are going to go with those to be installed in the buildings. Those components are delayed in their production, in their delivery. Some of them are waiting outside Los Angeles in the Pacific ocean right now. So that's the kind of delay that costs money that our building owner property managers are facing. We're way late. You need to do this yesterday. And it's simply going to cost too much money. And nobody's going to be able to do that, is the other half of my answer. So there you go. How do we find that balance in this is really an urgent global crisis, and yet we don't have all that much capital to address it in
0: a three-year or five-year period? Well, I guess what building owners can do is reach out to their elected officials in the state legislature, in the city council. their federal representatives. Maybe they can call the president. I don't know if he'll take the call. That's what, I guess, that's what building owners going. Hey, you know what? We want to do this. We want to be part of the solution, but you got to give us the ability to do it, not having the capital to make the investment along with everything else we're dealing with.
1: Before we wrap up, help break down the role of the City University of New York and the other resources that people have available to them.
2: The City University is training people, college students, through their degree programs to contribute to solving a great number of the world's puzzles and problems. Our engineering students are looking into and many of them are majoring in these sustainability issues. So that's part of what Building Performance Lab does is provide support to those college students in their majors. The other programs of Building Performance Lab are looking at city-owned buildings and helping the city to comply with their own laws. Then we also train people outside of the college student crowd. We, we train as ongoing continuing education. We have programs that teach people how to make their buildings more energy efficient, reduce carbon dioxide emissions. The other parts that go into this that New York City has provided for, and really CUNY is one part one piece of the accelerator program that New York City funded to help building owners with this. So that I mentioned before, the PACE financing program is also under that accelerator umbrella. And then there are several other, there's the consulting program that any building owner can access the accelerator consultants. And then my colleagues at Sustainability Help Center are there every business day, available by phone, and then at any time you can send email to Sustainability Help Center and get support, questions answered, and then provision of resources to those who contact Sustainability Help Center. And we also offer a a wide variety of public-facing classes. There are benchmarking classes, Building Energy Compliance Seminar, teaches people about energy compliance laws. We have that at three levels. There's an introductory, and then there are two classes or seminars that go deeper into the
0: energy compliance laws. And Lindsay, what's the role of Super to support compliance and the use of your platform with regard to that?
1: From Super's perspective, we're really supporting and facilitating the collaboration and communication across all of the stakeholders for a property. So your property manager, your developer and sponsor, the board of a building and the residents as well, right? And as we were mentioning here, they all have a role to play in the sustainability of a building. And I think that it's also coordinating the projects that a lot of these buildings will have to do. These are large-scale, ongoing, multi-year projects in some cases. And so for them, they need tools to be able to help stay on top of all of that and to hold them accountable. Our productivity software is really designed to ensure that accountability and to create that transparency within all of the stakeholders in a building so that they can adequately start to make those strides forward.
2: On your super platform, is that able to interact with existing building management systems and their work order systems?
1: We have some systems where we're able to pipe in information already. So, for instance, some people have monitoring systems on their um, heating systems, right? And so if there is something wrong, we can automate all the responses directly into our platform. And so that way, the managers have one place to go and look at all of that. I think that's an exciting thing for us, though, as we look to the future of all of the pieces that are needed for managers to be able to make sure healthy, safe operations of properties is to think about other sources of data, other ways to integrate. And there's a lot of really interesting technology out there that is hardware software enabled. We're more in the software space, but definitely those that are building the hardware tools to be able to report back. I think that could be really interesting for us to to kind of centralize all of that information.
2: That's an important part of understanding this whole thing is the amount of digital information available makes platforms like that one of the key resources for property managers to tap into because we do have so much data available to
0: us. We'd be foolish not to use it. Lindsay, how, how can people get in touch with you?
1: You're always welcome to email me. It's lindsay, lindsay at hiresuper.com. That's h-i-r-e-s-u-p-e-r.com.
0: And Jim? Yes, Jim Lane. I'm
2: a program manager for the City University Building Performance Lab. You can reach me through my email at lane at c-c-n-y dot
0: That's j-l-a-n-e. At
2: ccny.cuny.edu.
0: And everyone, I'm going to put that in the show notes along with a lot of other links uh, to some of the things that we spoke about today. So definitely take a look at the show notes. If you're on the website uh, for Realty Speak, you just scroll down and they're there. If you scroll down on your podcast app or on Spotify or look at the description tab, you will see everything in the show notes. Lindsey Jim, that was super educational. And before we go, I have one more question for both of you. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the world had changed, what do you wish it would be?
2: I want Vladimir Putin to stop fighting his war in Ukraine. Not only is it doing enormous damage to the people in that region of the world, it is creating much more environmental harm than we can imagine. The Energy use, the energy waste, it's there on top of the enormous human catastrophe that any war brings.
1: You know, I think that humans, as people, we all have the capacity to be truly benevolent. And if I could wake up one morning and everyone could tap into the kindest version of themselves, I think, you know, even just driving here, People get a little angry on the road. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's kind of all about working together to solve these problems and to make our world a little bit better.
0: I'm going to echo what both of you said and just share that we as humans do have the capacity to work together for the greater good, which ultimately will lend itself to an improved way of how we experience life individually. Lindsay, thanks for being my co-host in this episode. Great questions. Jim, thank you so much for being here today on Realty Speak.
2: It was really nice to be here today, Bill. It was a pleasure to share the information with you and Lindsay and your audience.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. And thanks for teaching us so much, Jim.
0: Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Subscribe and never miss an episode. You can do so on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Search for Realty Speak, find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. Spotify, you will find Realty Speak there as well. And don't forget to check out the show notes for a wealth of additional information relevant to today's episode. Please help RealtySpeak grow by sharing the show with others. How? Do an email blast. Include as part of your newsletter or website blog. Post from your LinkedIn, Facebook, or X, formerly known as Twitter. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, having a New York City Local Oil 152 gas piping inspection done, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.